Yeah. And with the leg lifts, especially just do the talk test. If you aren't talk able to talk, you're probably not breathing. <laughs> that is To Cirque Sai. Today's episode is all about the pelvic floor. Thanks for hopping on, Mariah. It's really awesome to meet you and have you here. Before we get into things, as far as I can tell, you somehow managed to escape Wisconsin without frostbite <laughs> or overdosing on cheese, and you yes. came out on top with a doctorate in physical therapy and a bachelor's in exercise physiology, which is really awesome. Your current work is with clients who generally, well, Lots of clients, I imagine, but your focus is with clients who have a history of chronic pain, orthopedic concerns, and pelvic floor dysfunction. How did you get into those regions of focus? Yeah, so um, my primary specialty is pelvic floor physical therapy. I treat orthopedic concerns because they usually tend to go hand in hand, especially in the hip and the back. But I really got into pelvic floor PT um, when I was younger. Uh, In undergrad, I was in a direct admit program and I just wasn't sure if PT was right for me. And then one of my um, mentors told me, well, you know, you're really feminist, right? I was like, oh, oh sure. <laughs> and she said, have you ever heard of public floor PTs? No, I have no idea what that is. And once she started explaining it to me and I took a few extra classes, um, I was hooked because I just felt so passionate that women in particular didn't know all these things about their body and it should just be common knowledge. And then as I got deeper into it, I got really upset by the lack of representation for male um, patients and just how, you know, they're very underserved because many pelvic floor PTs weren't willing to treat men. And then I guess I got even deeper Then I was looking at, you know, the transgender community and non-binary folks and just realizing how much emotion is stored in this area of our body and how that leads to dysfunction and then really at the most basic level of things their muscles just like anywhere else and they shouldn't be this giant mystery really should be something that we can all understand and then learn to manage and adapt and be functional yeah i that's really awesome i think uh Like you said, it's an area where a lot of populations end up being underserved or underrepresented. And because it's like a geographical region on the body that has just a lot of built-in kind of potential weirdness from a cultural perspective, that it's it's even something that's almost taboo to talk about in a lot of cases. (laughs) What is your take on the pelvic floor, how it connects to the other surrounding areas, core muscles, diaphragm, and then why why does it matter? Yeah. So when we talk about the pelvic floor, um, we never really talk about the pelvic floor in isolation. A term that I like to use is pop can anatomy, and that's really, you know, the basis of what we talk about at the clinic, because when you think about a can of soda, it's this highly pressurized system, you know, you got the 
bottom of the can of soda hold, holding things in, the top of the can of soda holding things in, but then you also have this wrapper surrounding it that is kind of holding everything together to create ideally a nice functional system. And that's very similar to our body where, you know, the bottom of the can of soda is your pelvic floor, the top is your diaphragm, which is your primary breathing muscle, or it should be your primary breathing muscle. And then we have um, your deep core, your transverse abdominis, which is the wrapper around that can of soda. And so if there's weakness in any of those components or just dysfunction, so if one is overactive, one is underactive, then that's going to create kind of a cascade of events that's going to lead to potentially pain, things like urinary leakage, um, or just an inability to reach in the case of more advanced things like circus arts or, you know, high level athletics like running, you might just not be able to reach your full potential because they're not working well together. One one quick question I have with the the taboo or not, I don't want to say taboo, but the, the kind of lack of comfort of talking about pelvic floor things and with the way it's... Uh, often under under discussed in different most demographic groups let's be real like yeah. most of them <laughs> most how do you or how do you think um other healthcare practitioners can reconcile the fact that it is an important thing to talk about it does have a potential for dysfunction or working improperly but also with the knowledge that the narrative and the language we use around these things um, has an impact as well. So I think at least, again, not a, not a physical therapist, um, not a pelvic floor specialist, but in my head, I imagine it can be pretty tricky to be like, there are these actual things that are impacting you and I want to convey this information to my patient, my client, whatever, yeah. but I don't want to reinforce a potential narrative of like dysfunction or something that could kind of propagate that further yeah um well number one just as far as approaching the subject most people are willing to talk about it i think that you know there's this big like oh well my patients don't want to talk about this on the side of a healthcare provider if you're asking about these things mm -hmm. um but patients in general do trust their healthcare provider, especially if they've gone there, you know, a couple times, if you're their primary care provider. Um, and if you ask them, like, hey, is this an issue for you? You know, just with general screening questions, like, do you have pain with any type of intercourse? Do you have any urinary leakage? Just kind of the basic questions. And people will usually tell you. Um, so I'm always amazed and just honored by the openness of my patients on their very first appointment. And they're telling me some of the most intimate details of their life. And they're like, no one has ever asked me this before, you know, and yet they're completely willing to tell me because they want help. So just that side of things first. But then also my biggest kind of just the base that I return to is their muscles, just like anywhere else in your body. They can get tight, they can get weak, and I usually bring out the pelvic model. I'm like, here, look at these guys. Like, they're just normal little muscles. They have this thing that they're doing, um, and usually I use the term more coordination rather than dysfunction because, um, you know, when someone has weakness, they may not actually be that weak. They might just have a coordination issue where they're not turning on at the right time, they're not turning off at the right time. So I talk a lot about timing and 
hey, your muscles do this really well, but we need to work on this side of things. So mm-hmm. coordination tends to be one of the greatest ways that I approach it. Cool. Thanks for, for answering that. Okay. Mm-hmm. So like you were saying, pelvic floor in conjunction with the diaphragm and the core muscles creates this uh, cylinder or like soda pop can of pressure. Mm-hmm. And then what what can what can go wrong and what can or what can that impact yeah so as far as in more circus things um what i imagine would be present i don't know a ton about circus arts but compared to other you know athletic populations that i work with um you know, when you're working really hard and doing these super high-level tasks, a lot of people do what we call bearing down, where they're putting an immense amount of pressure downward, whether that be withholding their breath um, or just clenching a lot of, you know, their core muscles together to try to give themselves stability. And so what I see happen is all this pressure is being forced downwards and it has to go somewhere, kind of like that can of soda analogy. It's going to go down. It's going to go towards the pelvic floor. And so then that can create a few different types of responses. And it just depends which way your body works. So some people will respond by their pelvic floor is squeezing like crazy to try to meet that pressure. So they're squeezing, squeezing, squeezing to make sure that your pelvic organs don't fall out essentially and so they're squeezing trying to give your body stability trying to compensate for that immense amount of pressure that's putting being put downwards and that can lead to pelvic pain because they're squeezing so hard those muscles never get to release they don't get a break they need a break you know we would never just hold a bicep curl for 24 hours a day <laughs> doesn't make you any stronger and so those muscles need to be able to fully release um, the flip side of things that can happen is there's all this pressure being put down and then these muscles just get so weak because they're not able to meet that pressure and they get hypotonic where they start dropping we get what's called prolapse where you know the uterus can drop down the bladder can drop down the rectum can drop actually down and start moving out of the pelvis because it's not getting the support that it needs and this is most common in women because of the most in female bodies because you know it's most likely that the uterus will drop into the vagina or the bladder will drop into the vagina but it can happen to men as well and so it's something that everyone really needs to be conscious of and then kind of the in-between version of both of those is that some of the muscles might get really tight and some of them might get a little bit more on the hypotonic side and the weak side and so then when we work on in PT is okay these front muscles of your pelvic floor we need to get those to relax but then we need the ones in the back to be picking up some of the slack and we need them to be stronger Um, but really what I find the most helpful out of anything is just people learning their daily habits and what could be contributing to this coordination issue throughout their daily life. And a lot of times it is just people bearing down, holding their breath, doing these exercises when they're not realizing that they're doing it. And so just bringing awareness of, okay, when I'm doing a sit-up, 
I don't need to be holding my breath. I need should be exhaling so that that pressure and that can of soda can be regulated. It's not just being forcefully pushed downwards. And similar to other high-level tasks, like just trying to engage your core, engage your pelvic floor, but doing a gentle exhale to make sure that not all that pressure is just being forced down. So so kind of what your perspective on, on it is, most, most exercises are fine, if you're able to appropriately breathe during them. Yeah. So so if there's an exercise that is potentially too hard for someone that they feel the need to kind of like hold their breath or valsalvas, then in those cases, they might need a regression instead, something a little bit easier where they can focus on breathing well while doing a similar movement. Yeah, exactly. And that's really what I see is that people are just doing things that are too hard. And I love just kind of the human nature of wanting to push yourself and do something harder and do something more difficult. But you know, you have to be strong enough to do that activity or it's going to create problems. And I think, you know, particularly in people as they're getting older, they think, oh, well, I used to just be able to do that exercise and not have to think about it. And now I have to engage my deep core and I have to engage my pelvic floor. And I, oh, I just wish I didn't have to think about it anymore. But, you know, when you're doing that when you're younger, that wasn't the right way to do it either. That's probably what's created some of this dysfunction later on in life. Or even if you are younger, you know, I treat a lot of patients that are 17, 18, that are already having pelvic floor dysfunction from things like sports and um other things just resulting after puberty, really. Um, but yeah, most activities are safe. Sit-ups are probably my least. If I had to pick one exercise where I was like, I wish that no one would ever do this again, it's sit-ups because that's really trying to train our rectus abdominis, the six-pack abs. And there are just such better ways to strengthen those muscles in much more functional ways. You know, sit-up doesn't get you a whole lot. Except for aesthetics, I guess. <laughs> mm-hmm. First of all, I, I 100% agree. I, I don't think that I've done a sit-up in, in at least a decade, and I don't think I'll ever do one again. I don't think there's a lot of a point to them. Um, with that in mind, in gymnastics, in aerial, in circus, there are a lot of drills that train uh, like a hollow body position where you're trying to put yourself in posterior pelvic tilt um, so you have no lumbar extension and you're, I think, more likely to use your rectus abdominis to, to do that movement. Um, and so... Would you say that there are similar things to a sit-up that people might want to either consider uh, reducing the volume or load of those movements or finding an alternative movement uh, altogether? Something that maybe trains the rectus abdominis in conjunction with other core muscles or trains it in a way that you're less liable to hold your breath or trains it in a lengthened position rather than a super shortened contracted position thoughts on that yeah so you know one of the good ways to tell if your rectus is really strong enough to do some of those exercises if you lay on your back and you get into that posterior pelvic tilt and you have your back completely flat and you start lowering your legs 
see how far down you can get while still breathing the entire time. You might want to count out loud, say your ABCs, whatever you got to do to make sure you're still breathing. See how far you can get before you start to lose that pelvic tilt, before you have to start holding your breath. And that gives you a really good just kind of gauge of oh, am I strong enough to be getting and doing a full leg lowering and leg lift and doing more of a V-up position? Um, Because if you can't maintain it from a straight 90 degrees going all the way down, then you're probably not strong enough yet. Not saying you can't get there, but you're going to need to hit it pretty hard and you're going to need to focus on it for weeks before you're able to do some of those more high-level activities. So I would start by isolating just one component instead of trying to do more of a V-up where your upper body and your lower body is engaged. Do more eccentric control, you know, slowly lowering those legs and just see how you're able to progress. And that's just one version that I would recommend. Cool. That's awesome. And I think you could probably apply that same idea to hanging leg raises, right? Where if you're doing it and you're like, oh, I can't breathe right away, then maybe you want to work on that eccentric lower or do a partial range of motion rep where you're working on breathing in that partial range of motion rather than being like, I must do the full range of motion and I'm going to make it happen any way I can. Yeah. And with the leg lifts, especially just do the talk test. If you aren't talk able to talk, you're probably not breathing. <laughs> I, I love that. And I think you know, when I first started Circus and Ariel, and I, I imagine that this is maybe true of other folks, there was a lot of focus on just doing leg raises, doing hollow body holds, doing things that potentially trained our core to not necessarily work in the way that would be most helpful. With that in mind, we've we kind of touched on this a little bit in terms of some exercises that you'd rather people, you know, regress or switch away from. Yeah. Are there certain behavioral patterns or other drills that you think would be helpful for athletes and i I don't think you said this explicitly do you find that so you, you you found you find that more more often than not um athletes that have pelvic floor challenges there are some muscles that are really tight and some muscles that aren't rather than being totally hypertonic or totally hypotonic yeah so um what i see most commonly with athletes is that their external obliques are crazy crazy thick very hypertonic very well trained um a lot of our exercises i think were taught pretty much from age like 11 up thinking about russian twists and just all these twisting motions which are good you know we need our obliques to be working to help us twist their muscle that helps with rotatory motion but these ones get incredibly overtrained and then our deep core the transverse abdominis um which is unique in the fact that its fibers run horizontally. It's kind of like a corset for our spine. That one gets severely undertrained. And then, you know, our pelvic floor often is trying to meet this pressure of the external obliques. Because you think of the obliques, if you ever look at a diagram of the anatomy of the obliques, they run at a diagonal. And so the way that they're running leads you to more of that rotation motion, motion which is great, but it also leads you to more, a little bit more flexion, and it just exerts pressure downwards. And so if the transverse, this 
group of muscles with um, horizontal fibers isn't activated to stabilize the spine and give support to that cane of soda, then it's going to put more pressure down on the pelvic floor. And there's actually an interesting study, which I would have to dig it up for you, that looked at external oblique overactivity in women who had stress incontinence. And it found that you're more likely to have stress incontinence if your external obliques are overactive um, versus the women who had more normalized external obliques we're less likely to have leakage, which is pretty cool. But looking at that, you know, we really want to uptrain the deep core, the transverse abdominis, and then we want to make sure that the pelvic floor is able to respond appropriately. But in general, I'd say a lot of athletes lean towards the more hypertonic pelvic floor. Not everyone, of course, but that when I see people who have dysfunction and they're very athletic, it tends to be more on that side of things, especially younger in life. Um, if, let's say, it is a female-bodied person who has had, you know, a pregnancy and a delivery, they might have a little bit more hypotonic in the pelvic floor, but they still might be hypertonic in their external oblique. So it's kind of a mixed bag. It's really something that needs to be fully evaluated. But um, as far as exercises that people can do to really improve their pelvic floor function, um, one of the most basic ones that I just like to start with, regardless of whether you're hypo or hypertonic pelvic floor, is just getting your diaphragm activating. Um, and so at night, just really like spending a good few minutes. Number one, it'll help you relax before you go to sleep, but spending some time doing some diaphragmatic breathing and visualize and try to tune into what's happening at your pelvic floor when you do that because a lot of the reason that people have pelvic floor dysfunction is because they just don't have an awareness and then they then they don't have control and so all these things are happening at a more subconscious level like the tightening and the relaxation is happening subconsciously versus if you can bring it to the conscious level then you can control it you can prevent dysfunction but at night you know really just practicing laying on your back doing some nice gentle inhalation for four seconds, exhaling for about six, um, and letting your belly expand, but trying to not let it just come from your stomach. You also want to get lower rib cage expansion, and you want to get a slight expansion into your low back as well, and we call that 360 breathing, where you're getting a full expansion in your entire lower abdominal canister, and you're trying to minimize the activation in your upper chest. And so if you do that, if you're able to get a true 360 breath, which you can put your hands on your sides, you can put your hands on your belly to feel if you're getting that. When you inhale, you should feel your pelvic floor gently push away from you. Because your body is this can of soda, as pressure is being added, you know, if it's a valsal, that's pressure in a bad way, it's pushing too much force down. But if you're just doing a gentle inhale, those muscle fibers of your pelvic floor are actually going to gently stretch and release and lengthen. And you can help that by then visualizing those muscles softening and releasing. And then when you gently exhale, you might feel that your pelvic floor lifts a little bit because that pressure is leaving the system so the pelvic floor is gonna rise. Um, and that's just a really good way to see like, can I even control my pelvic floor? Can I feel it? What's happening down there? And that's really good, like I said, for anyone who is hyper or hypotonic. With something as nuanced as pelvic floor control, maybe it would be helpful to know, you know how long it could take someone before they feel that sense of connection and control. 
whereas like with your bicep, you'd be like, all right, I'm going to look at my bicep and I have done a bicep curl. That's okay. I got it. Yeah. No, definitely. So, um, when we look at like neurophysiology for some people, it's supposed to be two weeks. You gain faster synapses at the level of your neurons within two weeks. But when I'm really working on it with people in the clinic, some people are able to get it immediately. I give them two cues and they feel it. They got it. Other people who work on this for eight weeks, and that's to get from level one of control to level two of control. And then we do another eight weeks, and then we get them to level three. And, you know, it's really stepwise for some people, and other people are just, oh, yeah, I got it. And it really just depends on your level of body awareness. Um, But this is such an area where we don't have good body awareness. So, you know, we have these athletes who are able to really control every, you know, muscle in the rotator cuff, but then comes to the pelvic floor and they've never thought about this area. You know, there's all this cultural shame around this area. So we just don't pay attention to it. And then, you know, there's issues of trauma and abuse that cause us to compartmentalize a lot. And then in addition to that, we can't see it like you said. And so um, humans are very visual creatures. It's really tough when you can't see it. So I actually have a lot of people get out a mirror and really just take a look down there see what's happening. Um, When you inhale or when you push to bear down, the anus should open up. I say it opens up like a rose blooming. Um, So (laughs) you'll see it open up and expand if you're truly relaxing and if you're bearing down correctly, you'll see it kind of push towards the mirror. Same thing if you're doing a squeeze, you should see it lift up and pull away. Um, But in pelvic PT, we also use something called biofeedback, where we put little electrodes. There's different ways to do it. Sometimes there's intravaginal and rectal sensors. At my clinic, we use electrodes on the outside. So I place the electrodes right next to someone's anus on either side. It's connected to a little computer. And then they can see on the computer what um, how many millivolts of electrical energy that their muscles are giving off. And so you can see, oh, when I'm standing, I'm able to relax really well, but as soon as I sit down, my muscles tighten up or vice versa. And laying down is easy to relax, but you know, when I go to do a jumping jack, after I do one jumping jack, I can't for the life of me release these muscles. And then we work on training those movement patterns using kind of the visualization of being able to see those muscles contracting to aid in that process. Yeah, I, I think if someone is having challenges with pelvic floor related issues uh i I think you're right 100 about the the visual aspect of things making it a lot easier to connect to what's going on um i when i was i don't know four years ago or something um someone was trying to to get me to do an exercise that without some kind of feedback I was like I just can't I'm so yeah. I have no <laughs> idea and I I will admit that I am someone who honestly has a pretty low level of like bodily awareness I circus it covers it up but I'm super clumsy and super uncoordinated <laughs> and generally like don't know where I am in space unless I'm doing one very specific thing but I, yeah I think with with the visual feedback it's really helpful that said not everyone can afford to go to a clinic that has the tools that you described so the idea of just getting a mirror and being like oh i can look at my 
whether it's opening up or closing and yeah that's that's i think a worthwhile thing for folks to do so not to get this narrative out there that you know everyone should go quickly like look at your butthole you might have pelvic floor <laughs> um issues but but if someone doesn't know yeah. you know whether they do or not are there relatively common signs that you could be like all right this is probably something worth going to a pelvic floor specialist about no matter what gender or sex you are yeah so um i like to think of it kind of as screening questions like what would be most helpful for a physician to ask their patient um to kind of screen for these things and then these are questions you can ask yourself so the big kind of default one is Do you have pain with any type of intercourse, whether this be, you know, self-touch, oral penetration in any form? Is it painful? And then thinking, when is it painful? Is it only painful with climax or anything like that? If you have any pain with intercourse, there is a really high likelihood that you have some sort of pelvic floor dysfunction Um, because orgasm should never be painful. Um, It should not be painful to be penetrated. It should not be painful to have touch on the outside, external genitalia. Either way, it shouldn't be um, an uncomfortable, painful experience. So that's kind of key number one if someone is having pelvic floor dysfunction. Then going in a little bit deeper, you know, I see a lot of people who have this hip pain and, you know, they have been to PT before it hasn't really touched it. They get imaging. Their MRIs are normal. Their CT scan, you know, everything's normal. But they feel this pain deep in their hip. Um, they don't have a labral tear, all this stuff. That can often be pelvic floor related. Same thing with the back pain. You know, I've had this back pain, gone to PT, all my images are normal, nothing has ever helped. Well, you might have some dysfunction in your pelvic floor that is affecting you know, force regulation or some dysfunction in your deep abdominal muscles that maybe your general orthopedic PT doesn't necessarily have the knowledge on how to cue pelvic floor related with deep core. Um, And so that's kind of the other mystery group that I see the most where they're like, I've done PT three times and it has never helped. And then we do a pelvic exam and I'm like, oh, well, that's because your deep pelvic floor wall is extremely tight and it just needs to learn some coordination and then you'll be good to go um but you know if you're just doing clamshells day in day out for your hip pain that's actually not the right thing for that group of muscles so that's another thing that i always ask every single evaluation is do you have any hip or low back pain because may or may not be related but really important to know Um, And then if you're having any sort of leakage and everyone always thinks, you know, number one, that women are the only one or female bodies are the only ones that get leakage. Not true. Um, Or they think that you automatically have weakness if you're having leakage. So I have what I see a lot, especially I tend to work more with people who do pole than people who are doing circus things. But in a lot of my pole dancing patients, they just have this strong hypertonicity because they're always using their inner thighs to kind of grip the pole and then um, they get something called post void dribble where you urinate and then as soon as you stand up you have leakage and I see a lot of men with this as well and this tends to be more of actually a tightness issue or a poor coordination issue where 
you know, you might have some weakness in the muscles, but then they spasm after you urinate. So any type of leakage, whether it be, you know, I have leakage when I cough, laugh, or sneeze, or I have leakage after standing up right after urinating, or as soon as I start walking away from the urinal, whatever the case may be, um, or any leakage with urgency where I'm rushing to the bathroom and I don't quite make it. Um, those tend to be pelvic floor dysfunction related things. Um, and then the big one that I feel like everyone always forgets about that is the very, very common in the younger population is constipation. So people think, oh, constipation, it just matters what I eat. That's probably what's driving this. When people have had chronic constipation for years and years and years, they probably have pelvic floor dysfunction mm. at some level. Um, especially if their diet, they're like, I've been seeing a nutritionist, I've been seeing a dietitian, you know, I'm working really hard, I'm eating enough fiber, but I still cannot have regular bowel movement. Um, the muscles of your pelvic floor might not actually be releasing well enough to then have that bowel movement. And who would have ever thought that we need to be taught how to have a bowel movement or how to urinate, but yeah, a lot of people don't know how. <laughs> and so that's where pelvic PT comes in. That last one, I don't think... I've heard as much discussion around, so I think thank you for bringing that up. Um, with all of that in mind, are there, in addition to just starting with basic breathing and going to a pelvic floor specialist, um, are there ways that people can adjust how they go to the bathroom to potentially diminish or mitigate some of those things that you mentioned? I've, I've seen somewhere, you know, that um, it's actually like better for men to not stand up while they pee um, because they're contracting muscles as they are standing and they're less relaxed and whatnot. But again, not the expert. So please. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so starting, sorry with male-bodied people, so if you're standing to urinate, you know, I don't have any research saying that sitting or standing is better. I do know that a lot of my pelvic pain patients who have, like, penile pain or scrotal pain, um, we usually have to have them sit. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that part of the issue is just the way that you stand if you're urinating with a penis or even if you're using um, like some sort of device if you're transitioning, mm -hmm. um, do not clench your butt cheeks while you're standing. I think that everyone wants to thrust their hips forward to urinate and then their glutes are contracting. And when your glutes contract, they have a very strong relationship to the pelvic floor. And so your pelvic floor is probably going to be squeezing too. And then that can lead to incomplete emptying, incomplete urination. Um, yeah, whether no matter what type of body you have, if you're standing, you're urinating, your glutes are contracting, your pelvic floor is probably not releasing properly. Um, and so just trying to stand a little bit more neutral, be aware of your body, pay attention to what you're doing. Um, and that can help a lot on that side of things. But as far as just general urination health, I'm so glad you asked, asked this question because this is something that can just save people, you know, so much time in pelvic PT um, if you just start it young. But you should only be urinating every three to four hours, okay? And then when you urinate, you should be able to urinate for eight to ten minimum Mississippi seconds. So when you're peeing, one, one thousand, two, one thousand, really count it out because if you're peeing less than that, 
okay, number one, you're either dehydrated or number two, you went to the bathroom too soon. So if you just peed an hour ago and you're going again and you're only urinating for four seconds, you didn't need to go. You're training your bladder to be overactive, um, which can then lead to pelvic floor dysfunction as well. So bladder norms, how we say it is basically should be urinating eight to 10 seconds. You should be going every three to four hours. And so then on the flip side, if you're only urinating every five to six hours, um, you're probably causing your pelvic floor to get into a little bit more of that tightness zone because you're going to be squeezing, trying to hold things together. Um, you may be improperly stretching your bladder and you're probably just dehydrated. So mm. making sure that you're drinking enough water throughout the day, which of course the general recommendation is 64 ounces a day. Um, and then counting out that urination. So those, that's the, the easy stuff as far as like, what are there a couple things you can do to lead to not having urinary dysfunction later on? Um, and then just watching if you're clenching your glutes all the time. Because I see it particularly in young women who maybe stand a lot for work and they kind of thrust their hips forward to stand and they lock their knees out it's and a, a lot of their weight position. is in their toes. What was that? It's, the, it's like the traditional ballet position almost where you're shifting your hips forward over your toes, yeah. your glutes are engaged, you, yeah, extension. Yeah, and so that is what we call the butt clenching posture. Um, and a lot of patients with chronic pelvic pain assume that posture. Um, but our body likes it because we can turn a lot of things off. So your knees are locked, you're hanging on the ligaments on the front of your hip. And so, you know, it's energetically efficient for your body, but it is not good orthopedically and pain-wise as far as the stresses that you're placing on your knees and your hips. Um, and then really for everyone, just the popping of the hip where you put all of your weight on one hip mm. and that you know, you're turning off all the muscles kind of surrounding that area. Your core isn't engaged. Your glutes are squeezing in a weird way. Um, you really just want to make sure that you're actually using your muscles appropriately. And we think a lot about in public PT of we want the contraction to meet the demands of the task. So I have people come in that have leakage and they do have weakness, but when they do a squeeze, they're just squeezing as hard as they possibly can. And really, we need people to get that coordination of being able to control a squeeze get into those nuanced ranges of I want my patient to be able to squeeze to 20% of their maximum their one rep max I want them to be able to squeeze <laughs> to you know, 50% of their maximum squeeze um, and to be very comfortable in those nuanced zones and so the same goes for even doing high level activities okay yeah if you're doing something that is going to put a lot of force down on your pelvic floor we want your pelvic floor to be able to meet that force but if you're just standing up and just standing there quietly, your pelvic floor needs to be on, but it does not need to be squeezing super, super hard. Um, your glutes should be able to relax. You should be able to let those muscles go. Yeah, and and I think that applies a little bit to just athletics in general or, or just moving through life in general is the amount of effort you put out should be related directly to the actual demands of the task. Yes. <laughs> if, if you're always exerting at 100% for every movement your body is going to get used to working too hard, harder than it needs to, you're placing undue stress, and probably movements that aren't actually that hard will feel really hard because you're just like, I gotta work hard. It's a lot of overuse injuries for sure. And the same thing goes for the core because, you know, we can't talk about the pelvic floor without talking about the core, but 
you know, I see people just sucking in all the time because in our modern day culture for everyone, we're taught that you don't want to let your belly out. And so then people are just walking around squeezing their core at all times because they want this flat belly and they don't realize kind of how much pressure they're putting down on their pelvic floor and how your abs deserve break <laughs> they really deserve a break and so that's also what leads to the poor diaphragm activation too is because to activate your diaphragm your belly is going to get bigger when you inhale and people are so resistant to doing that and really can almost give themselves a complex about really letting those muscles go and i you know i just see people feel very self-conscious even just in a room with just me trying to perform those exercises and so kind of doing the mental work around that too of like no, my body is made to do this. This is a good thing. I feel so happy that my body can do this for me instead of, oh, my belly is getting so big. And um, yeah, just being grateful and appreciative of how much work our body does for us. Yeah, absolutely. So would you recommend that, uh, for example, you know, if I'm a circus artist or a circus student or whatnot, the general idea would be when I'm just going about my daily activities to almost with intention, like let my belly expand as I breathe and, and be comfortable with how that looks and how that feels. And then, you know, when I am doing that higher intensity activity, that's when you want to adjust the amount of kind of tightening and contracting to be representative of what I'm asking of that, but that I shouldn't be, kind of holding my stomach in all the time when I'm just existing in the world. Yeah. And, you know, our abs should be completely relaxed when we're laying on our back and we're going to bed. And so that's really why I recommend that time for the diaphragmatic breath. But if, you know, there's a person who feels like they are clenching all the time, doing that breathing and sitting and standing is really important too. You know, I'm not saying to let your abs be completely turned off when you're sitting or standing, but again, letting, you know, the contraction, the demands of the task. So the contraction that you're doing in your abdominal muscles when you're sitting should be pretty low level. You know, if you're sitting for a really long time, then those muscles are probably going to turn off. You might need to turn them back on. But again, doing the right ones, because oftentimes when I feel, I see people doing that restrictive, kind of always sucking their belly in, they're using all their obliques versus the obliques are not necessarily a postural muscle. That deep core, that transverse abdominus is supposed to be the postural muscle. Um, it has a lot more slow twitch muscle fibers. It's made to be on at a low level constantly, almost all day. But it's really that people are using you know, these super powerful external obliques to try to give that stability and it's just the wrong muscle group to be using. So getting comfortable letting the belly hang is really, you know, trying to get those obliques to turn off and to get the diaphragm to turn on. So I do recommend practicing that and being comfortable in that in-between zone, but also you don't need to just be sitting like in a slumped position, you know, letting your abs completely turn off. Yeah. Are there movement types or exercises that you would recommend, in addition to everything else that we've talked about, for uh, decreasing the 
hypertonicity of the obliques. For example, um, this is just something that I'm throwing out there. Maybe it's not the right thing, but just, uh, you know, okay, I have gotten my obliques to just want to be contracted and shortened all the time. And in addition to just sitting and letting my belly breathing occur naturally, maybe I also add in some eccentrically weighted side bends where I'm, you know, lengthening under load, or is that something that you'd be like, eh, don't worry about that. Just focus on everything else working well and that's fine. Yeah. So, I mean, it really just depends on the level of activity. So if someone is a really high level exerciser, they're going to need to do those more advanced exercises. Um, or if someone has a really hard time getting their diaphragm turning on. So I have people do weighted diaphragmatic breath. Mm. Um, you know, where we put, oh, like some sort of weight, whether it be a bag of flour or, you know, a sandbag on top of their stomach and they have to breathe into it or putting a TheraBand, you know, some sort of rubber band around their belly and they have to breathe into it. And we're resisting that or doing balloon training and we're resisting that activation. Um, but you know, we need to have that eccentric concentric control. And so I do like the, I use like side planks a lot, um, specifically from the knees so that we can really isolate the obliques and make sure that they're able to contract quickly and that they're able to do some eccentric control as well. Um, and that's more for my high level exercisers who have now mastered how to isolate their transfers. So step one was isolating transfers, how to activate transverse activity, and now we're bringing it all together. You know, they've been in therapy for many weeks and they're ready to progress to this higher level stuff of turning their obliques on when they need to be turned on, um, especially for running. You know, they need to be able to turn things on and turn them off really fast. And so I like activities like the side bends and side planks where you're training that more nuanced control of how to do eccentric, how to do it fast. But again, that's after people have the base of being able to get a transverse abdominus contraction. Did I answer your question? Yeah, 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 I think so. The first step is getting transverse to fire at that low level kind of constantly on state um to to provide support and stabilization and then retraining the obliques to have more nuanced contractions rather than just like always always contracting all the time exactly I think this might be the last question, um, even though I, I honestly, there's so much that I think people would be really excited to hear if they're nerds like we are. Um, <laughs> are there other places or resources that you would recommend um, people kind of seeking out if they're like, well, I would love to go to a pelvic floor specialist. I don't have the healthcare. If they live in the United States, healthcare is, coverage is an issue. If um, I don't have the money or I just don't feel comfortable going to an in-person clinic, are, you know, are there ways to still work to investigate these issues that you think are kind of financially accessible to your average person. And, you know, maybe, for example, maybe your clinic offers remote consultations at a reduced fee. Who knows? I don't know. But yeah, just, just some questions um, about, yeah. So number one, a lot of, as far as people not being comfortable going into the clinic, there are a lot of clinics offering health right now. Um, as far as licensing in the U.S., usually you can only practice 
within your state, so I cannot treat patients outside of Oregon. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a ton of virtual learning going on right now, and I am not a social media person, uh, but I am doing some teaching of my own. I just don't personally use Instagram or anything like that. So I know there's a lot of great resources out there, but I unfortunately don't have a lot of names to give just because I'm not very involved in that platform. Um, But I am teaching a monthly class on our clinic um, Instagram. And so I believe it's T-A-I Bethany PT. Um, And I am doing a class in the pelvic floor core every month. And so last month was kind of just like a general, more geared towards people who identify as female. And then um, this week, actually tomorrow, Mm. is going to be for the male-bodied pelvic floor um, and just going over a lot of the stuff that I talked about today. Um, But I will have a pelvic model out and I'll be able to show some things um, as far as relating to pelvic pain and, you know, weakness and things of that nature. Um, But there are a lot of great you know people out there doing pelvic floor PT on Instagram that's really where I recommend that people start their search Um, there's PTs teaching you how to activate your transfers how to activate your pelvic floor explaining you know if you are having pain some different things that you can do to help yourself and you know the internet is just such a wealth of knowledge and so being able to get that nuance on Instagram where you know that you're getting information from a PT I think it is so valuable and super awesome in a really good way to, you know, try to reach your goals of being pain-free or not having leakage without necessarily needing OTPT. Mm-hmm. Will your classes be ongoing for the foreseeable future? As long as I keep ideas <laughs> coming. That's, that is the hard thing about yeah. teaching. You're like, well, I've already taught that. Yeah. But yeah, every month is, you know, for the foreseeable future is when I'm going to be doing them. But I'm sure that people listening would love to take your class. And you covered so much that is really, really, really helpful in a way that is really accessible. So thank you. Thank you so much, Mariah. I, yeah, um, of course. Really enthused.